Hi, this is Steve. No podcast, including The Cinephiles, is perfect, and the fact that it has taken us over a hundred films to get to the work of Alfred Hitchcock is one of our biggest mistakes. But this month, we're going to make things right in a big way. Over the next four weeks, we will bring our listeners an in-depth analysis of the life and films of the master of suspense, beginning this week with an episode devoted to the man himself. So, if you're new to the work of Alfred Hitchcock, you have a lot of catching up to do. And a great place to start is on our website, cinephiles.net, where we have created a new page entirely devoted to the work of Alfred Hitchcock. There you can buy some of our favorite Hitchcock films, like The 39 Steps, Notorious, Rebecca, Strangers on a Train, North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo, The Birds, and many, many more. You can even pick up a copy of the definitive interview with Hitchcock, conducted by none other than French New Wave filmmaker Francois Truffaut. Then, when you've done your own research into this master craftsman, come back on Friday to hear John and I discuss the life and times of Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are not entering the world of a great film, and instead we are entering the world of a great filmmaker. In fact, we're beginning an entire month devoted to this great filmmaker, and that man is Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, my name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, my name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, host, writer, and producer over there at Collider, and numerous other things in this city to stay alive, but yes... Ladies and gentlemen, finally on the Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I are tackling Alfred Hitchcock. And we've reserved an entire month, just like we did for Wells. And we had such great responses from you all about how much you enjoyed our month of Wells that Steve was like, well, maybe we should do the month of Hitchcock. And it just seemed like the most brilliant idea. And we already have next year planned yep. as well. So this is So I think this is a new Cinephiles tradition yeah. that January, January will be devoted to a single great filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, you know, I was thinking about it. Like, I don't really know why it took us so long to get to Hitchcock. We planned on it over and over and over again. It's obviously been requested over and over again from our fans. We have requests for his films on Patreon. Mm -hmm. And just one reason or another, we kept moving to something else. Yeah, we kept moving the goalposts. And I think that in a weird way, that parallels what happened to Alfred Hitchcock in his career. One of the greatest filmmakers of all time who really didn't get the respect that he deserved in his lifetime. People considered him a genre filmmaker. He never he won one award his entire life for yeah. Best Director. That's it. Yeah. He didn't win that director Oscar. You know, it's like it's his career is and of course today he's revered. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he was a popular, you know, suspense filmmaker. Yeah. And and so I, I feel like now is really the time that we can give him the full respect that he deserves. And we're not talking about a movie today. No. We're going to talk about the man and his career and a whole bunch of his films. Uh, he directed over 50 films. Yeah. You know, he had a career that began as a director in the mid-20s in the silent era and went all the way till Family Pot in 1976. Mm -hmm. That is a long, long run yeah. of films. Um, do you remember your first Hitchcock? Ooh. Well, I remember being cognizant of the shower scene, mm -hmm. right? Because if you were a if you were a lover of film, even as a young kid, like ten years, eleven years, twelve years old, you know the the sound of it. Yeah, that music and the is music, a cliche yes, through our whole life, right? For comedy sketches and things yeah, of that Simpsons nature, episodes or right, whatever, right? SNL sketches and what have you, but. Um, 
uh, my first Hitchcock. I think, ironically, my first Hitchcock, and still one of my favorite, is was Thirty Nine Steps. Really? Yes. That was your first one? The Robert Donat film, yeah. It's a great movie. Listen, I just watched Rear Window for the first time like six months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So these are films, and Vertigo itself I didn't get to till three or four years ago. So there are films that I came back to with Hitchcock, um, but I kind of found my way through his other stuff before I moved into uh, his bigger projects. Uh, 39 Steps was one, was one, I, there was something about that that I just thoroughly loved that it begins and ends exactly where it's, uh, where it, uh, in the theater, you know, it begins right. and ends in the theater. Uh, and then Lifeboat was another one that I discovered on TCM that I thoroughly loved. Um, but I think my first, honestly, my first exposure to Hitchcock, Steve, was the TV show. Oh, really? Yes. Because I used to watch that with my dad and my mom. And if, for those who don't remember the TV show, they would have the silhouette of Hitchcock, and he would walk into the silhouette, and it, it, yeah. you'd hear that music, and then I'd be fascinated by the episodes of, that he would present, that Alfred Hitchcock presents. What's so funny that you say that is that I think he was more of a character than I knew about yes. as a kid yeah. than actually the movies. Right. And my story, my first Hitchcock movie is so bizarre, but I will tell it to you, which is that uh, in 1977... My family took a cruise to Alaska, mm-hmm. which is the reason, as we talked about a long time ago, that I did not see Star Wars when it first. I saw oh, it. Yeah. I saw it after I came back from that trip. The whole missed the whole summer mm-hmm. when everyone was watching Star Wars. And in, on the cruise ship, there was a movie theater, and so my sister and I would go to the movie theater oh, all wow. the time. And there are three movies that I remember that played there that we saw over and over again yeah. on the ship. And those three movies are. Fun with Dick and Jane, starring George Siegel and Jane Fonda. Right. Annie Hall, oh, wow. which I watched over and over again as a nine-year-old. Yeah. I thought, I don't know what I got out of that. <laughs> and Family Plot, oh, which okay. came out in 1976 and it was on this cruise ship. His last one. His last one. So for whatever reason, the first Hitchcock, and it scared the crap out of me. Yes. The first Hitchcock movie I saw was his last film. Oh, ironic. Yeah. Wow. When I was, you know, nine years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So should we go back in through his life a little bit? Do it. Uh, this is born in 19, uh, sorry, he was born in 1889 uh, in Essex, and his parents ran a grocery shop, a little store, and a very Catholic family. He was a very timid kid, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. He was a very good kid. And one day, and this is really the most famous story of his childhood, at five years old, his dad sends him to the police station holding a note. He doesn't know why he's there. He's alone. He hands the note to the police officers. The police officers read the note. They look at him. They say, come with us. They walk him down into the jail. They lock him in a jail cell. They leave him there. And then they later say to him, this is what happens to boys who are naughty. Wow. Holy crap. He does not know if he did anything wrong. He does not know why his dad did this. He didn't know if he had actually done something wrong and was being punished for it, or if he was being told not to do anything wrong and this is what was going to happen to him, or if his dad thought he had done something wrong when he really hadn't. This began his lifelong fear of police. He never got a driver's license Mm -hmm. because he was afraid that he would get a parking ticket. So he was the British Steve Morris, (laughs) afraid of the police and what have you, hating the (laughs) police. Uh, can we end this joke? 
I think it's great. But all right, if you want to kill a joke, that's fine. <laughs> okay, so yeah. So he's afraid of the police. Yeah, afraid of the police. Mm-hmm. He heads off. They send him off to a Jesuit school that employs corporal punishment. Oh, Jesus Christ. So that doesn't help with his issues with fear. No. They move several times. At 13, he decided he wanted to be an engineer, went off to engineering school. Um, and then his dad died unexpectedly at the age of 52 when he was 15. So he had to leave school uh-huh. and go to work. And he worked as a technical clerk at a telegraph office. And and what's crazy is, is like, you know what? The odds are that's where he would end up. Yeah. He didn't have any plans on being a film director. He liked movies, you know, but this is 1914. Right. So movies aren't haven't happened in the way, you know, D.W. Griffith is just starting. Charlie Chaplin is just kind of starting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's working as this clerk, but he's also taking art classes at night. He's too young to go into World War II. Um, or I'm sorry, World War I. Uh, by 1917, he's old enough. So he tries to enlist, and they mark him as C3, which is basically it sounds like it's 4F, oh. you know, which is that he was not healthy enough to go into the war. And he hears, just as the war is ending, that the Lasky Company, which is a production arm of Paramount Pictures, is moving to London and that they're going to open up a studio there. And he had been really watching movies, particularly Chaplin and Griffin. Mm-hmm. And he went, I want to work at a movie company. And he'd been taking these art classes. And so he got a job as the illustrator on title cards for silent films. Oh, wow. Which means that because they would have, you know, when the character had to say something, it would cut to that card. And yes, there would be the words that say, my darling, I can't, <laughs> you know, or whatever it said. Yeah, yeah. And, but there would also be illustrations on it. And so he would draw the illustrations. So, for instance, if it was someone who is working too hard, it would be a candle burning on both ends or something oh, like that. Wow. And because he's doing these little illustrations, then he starts getting involved in the art department. And then he starts getting involved in actually writing what's on that title card. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, still early silent era of film. And so, and the British system was like, well, if you could do that, why don't you do this? Right. So then he started kind of writing some of the scripts and some of the scenarios. And then he still has not thought, I want to be a director. Right. It still hasn't occurred to him. And then he becomes an assistant director, works on lots of films. He ends up, because there's a partnership with the production companies in Germany, mm-hmm. and he was on the set of F.W. Murnau for The Last Laugh, oh. which I think I mentioned before might be my favorite silent film. Oh. It is brutal. It is brilliant. And he saw how Murnau worked and how he told the story visually. And by the way, The Last Laugh is a silent film with no title cards. It is oh, all wow. told completely silently. Okay. And it is a brilliant, brilliant movie. And that's, I think, where he started to think about the art of being a director. Mm-hmm. And then he makes his first film, which is in 1925, which is called Pleasure Garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like this was a, a really indie film. Yeah. Like uh, the film got stolen and then he didn't have enough money to buy more films. So he had to borrow money from the crew to get a couple of like 50 pounds to go buy some more film stock. Wow. And then he, you know, it's like everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong on this little, little tiny picture. Um, he makes a couple of more movies until we get to The Lodger, which is 1927. And it sounds like that's really the first Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Um, and I saw it in film school. Um, and it is, it's really good. And it, what it is, it's like a Jack the Ripper story. And ja- and there's a people that have like a boarding house and they think that their border is in fact the Jack the Ripper and they start to get really scared. And, and this is a theme, this is a Hitchcock wow. theme, which yeah. is the idea of suspicion that mm-hmm. you believe that this person you're with is dangerous. And so, and we're going to see that in a ton of different films. Yeah. And you see the first really Hitchcock touch in this movie, which is that they're 
downstairs, all our main characters, and the lodger has gone upstairs, and they hear the sound of his footsteps. But this is a silent film. <laughs> so how do you normally today we would hear the sound of the footsteps? Yeah. So what does Hitchcock does? He makes a floor out of glass, and they actually look up and see him through the floor walking around. Wow! So that and that gives the audience the sense that what's actually happening is that they're hearing him. Yeah. And is. this is the first of like those sort of Hitchcocky sort of tricks. Yeah. Like he likes that very clever little bit of storytelling. Right. Um, and and I really think by the way. You know, we've talked about both of these directors is that I, you know, I think we said that Spielberg, I believe, is the best craftsman, the clearest storyteller. I think he's a disciple of Hitchcock. Oh, okay. I think more than anybody else. And the other person I was thinking about is Fincher because oh, of those inventive, that. all that inventive style. It's like the glass ceiling, like yeah. going through the garbage cans at the beginning of uh, Fight Club. Right. The way you go into the panic room, like all these things that he likes to do mm -hmm. of kind of breaking through technologically to show you things the way you wouldn't see. I right. think that's pure Hitchcock. Okay. Um, I could see that, yeah. And one of the things that, that Hitchcock talks about a lot is the difference between surprise and suspense. Mm -hmm is that what he thinks is that a surprise gives you a 15-second thrill, and suspense gives you the whole movie. So a jump scare versus, versus full scare, well, a storyline scare. being stressed out about something. Yeah, yeah. There's a bomb. We don't, you know, the characters in the movie don't know there's a bomb. Right. We're going to spend 20 minutes being stressed out about that. <laughs> or just the difference between, like, we want to film a guy going to the airport. So he gets out of his house, he calls a cab, he gets in the cab, the cab goes down the street, it goes across the bridge, it goes down another street, it pulls into the airport. Yeah. Completely boring sequence. Yeah. Instead, the very beginning of the sequence, he calls the cab, he looks at his watch and goes, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to be, I'm going to miss my plane. Right. Do the exact same sequence and suddenly... There's suspense. Yeah. Because we're worried about something. Right. That's Hitchcock. Interesting. Uh, and right as after he works on The Lodger, he meets Alma, Alma Reville, mm -hmm. who comes to be his wife. And I really believe, and most people say, is the most important, longest lasting creative partner of his life. Yeah. I could see that. In fact, we've had several movies about her in the last few years. Yeah. The Hitchcock one that was with Anthony Hopkins and mm -hmm. uh, Helen Mirren, which I actually enjoyed. I did not see it. Oh, okay. Um, I actually really I was gonna thinking about watching it before we did this, but I mm -hmm. didn't get to it in time. Hopkins has a uh, he's done now twice like Nixon and this and mm, the yeah. Hitchcock one, and you may not look like them, but he certainly brings their energy to life. He and she was a person who behind the scenes he consulted with on scripts, mm -hmm. on casting, on designs, on every he talked through. I, my understanding is everything he was going to do, and she made her opinions known. And was a very and it's funny that Charlie Chaplin said the Hitchcock touch has four hands and two of them were Almas. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think it's a great, great quote. Um, and the interesting thing too, there's another director that we've talked about where this is important, which is the importance of silent film training for Alfred Hitchcock is learning to tell a story visually, not with words. In fact, he really hates words. And the other director that this is true of is John Ford. Mm. John Ford learned, you know. Uh, made his bones on silent film. And you see, you know, yes, is there dialogue in John Ford's movies? Is it really good dialogue? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. But visually, that's where the story is really being told. Yeah. You know, and that comes from silent filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But in 1929, we move into sound films. Mm -hmm. uh, his first film is Blackmail, which I don't think I've seen. No, I've never seen that. And then we get the original Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. Um, which is great, because I've seen the Jimmy Stewart one way more. Mm -hmm. I think I've only seen this one once. Um, and I, I, they're, they're just really different. Yeah. Well, he's matured as a filmmaker. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the 39 steps. 39 steps. 
That is a great movie. I love this movie so much because, as you said earlier, the tension throughout this movie of what's going to happen, how it's going to go down. This guy keeps escaping these situations, pursuing what he's pursuing. It's incredible to watch. And there's a for those of you who are keeping tabs, there's a criterion collection of this that you need to get with some I don't great have- behind the scenes and great documentaries about the making of the movie and about Hitchcock on the movie. It and is, Robert Donat as well. It is such a tense film. Yep. You want to know how I first heard about 39 Steps? Tell me. A totally silly story. <laughs> but in Neil Simon's Brighton Beach memoirs, yeah. Eugene, the the kid, the main character, describes uh him having his first wet dream. Oh, and his description of having his first wet dream is the tension was building like in the 39 steps. <laughs> so I knew the play and had never seen the movie. Right, right, right. But that to me is always linked. <laughs> it will always be linked with this strange Jewish kid in Brooklyn <laughs> talking about his first wet dream. Right. This is all and it's all the espionage stuff. And it's 1935. Right. And like you said. This is now before the Second World War, but after the First World War. So this idea of spies, the idea of tension, and all this thing happening right. through this that runs through the, and um, falsely accused. This is a theme he came back, comes over back to and over, over and over and over again. This idea of being falsely accused. And it may stem from the five-year-old That's kid who got put in jail. And not knowing if he was falsely accused or not. Yeah. Or feeling he was falsely accused. Or th- well, it's all these, because we're going to be on all different sides of this. Yeah, yeah. Of like, I believe you did it, or they believe I did it, yeah. or and that's the engine. And, and it's funny. It's also, by the way, 39 Steps is the origin or the beginning of the use of the term the MacGuffin. Oh, right. The MacGuffin, for those of you who don't know. No, you novice filmmakers yeah, or screenwriters. This, this comes from Hitchcock, but it's so useful an idea, which is, it is the thing that's making the movie happen. Yeah. It's the stolen plans. It's the secret. It's the it's the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Yep. It is there is a thing and people want it and it's causing these events. And what Hitchcock believes is it's completely not important. Mm-hmm. You have to have one. Right. Because right. that's why all this stuff is happening. Right. But that's not it's just an opportunity to make all this other stuff happen. Right. And you don't have to pay it off. Yeah. We don't it doesn't matter what was in the briefcase. Right. We just wanted to see everybody run around trying to get the briefcase. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, Robert Town, uh, this is what he said about 39 Steps. He said, it's and Robert Town, again, for those of you who don't know, yeah. one of the great screenwriters of all time, Chinatown, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's not much of an exaggeration to say that all contemporary escapist entertainment begins with the 39 Steps. Wow. I think he has a point. Yeah. Because this idea of the thrill, yeah. a movie that is emotionally thrilling, I think... It's not that there aren't exciting films before this, but in a way, Hitchcock defines that. Uh, yeah. You know, I really believe. Look at John McTiernan and Die Hard. Everyone references Die Hard. Yep. Is John McTiernan like a revered filmmaker? Not necessarily, but he certainly knocked it out of the park with Die yeah. Hard, and it's the one people come back to all the time. I sure thought he was going to be one of oh, uh, sure. that. You know, between. Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for October. I was like, this guy is the greatest thing. And then, you know, then, there, are the, there are other movies. Yeah. Some, other of them, movies. some of them are good. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, after that, he makes Sabotage, which is a story. The story mm. in that one is a woman discovers her husband is a secret agent. Yep. Again, it's this secret. <laughs> you suspect somebody of a thing. Right. Um, the Lady Vanishes, which is a great movie. Uh-huh. Um, and that was another one I saw in film school. And it's it's a, a woman who's a British spy. Poison is a governess. She disappears on a train. And it won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Director. Mm. That is the only Best Director Award he will ever win. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It's mind-blowing. Lady Vanishes in 1939. Yeah. Which is a really good movie. Yeah. 
Um, also a Criterion one. Oh, see, yes, I, I, there I are so many Hitchcock Criterions. So many. It's so I I would love to sit in on the Criterion how you pick a movie because it is so weird. Mm. I'm not saying that they're not all great movies, right. but there's like. Because Citizen Kane is not in the Criterion Collection, I know. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah, but 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 I think they're they're I think they pick movies that are not the number one movie yeah. that everybody can see. They're right. picking a movie that goes, no, this is one you should know about, right? That you maybe haven't seen. Yeah, you know, I've discovered many foreign films. Sure, and I've I, sometimes I'll buy these uh, sight unseen. You know, and I enjoy the discovery of that. Yeah. You know, well, I should do more of that. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. when they go fifty percent off, I'm like, it's twenty bucks. I can yeah. spare four, I can spare eighty dollars to buy four new films I've never seen before and explore them and enjoy them because if it says Criterion, that means it has value. It's got a stamp mind. of approval. Yeah, I, I it's so fun. I used to do that so much. Mm. Like when when I first got out of film school, and I first got a TiVo. Oh yeah. I just went. Oh, I discovered that you can program it to record based on a director. So I just went. You know what? I haven't seen any of these things. So I I mean I'd seen some of them, but right. but I went, okay, I'm just gonna put in John Ford and Howard Hawks and Akira Kurosawa and Hitchcock and Ingmar Bergman. And so I watched or like King Vidor and mm. all these guys. And so there was four or five years where I was watching just all these movies and I, there were so many unexpected, like weird like uh Fritz Lang films or oh, yeah. weird, you know, where I was just like, Oh my god, this is that I'd never heard of and would never have I didn't even know the name. Yeah. Uh and I just don't do that so much anymore because time is not what it once was, you yeah, know. I know, I know, I know. But I should do more of it. I miss my two years at Charlottesville, where I would just go on my days off, yeah. and watch laser discs all day at the University of Virginia Public Library or University of Virginia Library on campus, because you could just rent out laser. You couldn't, you couldn't leave right. the you could, library. Look, they had a little you room. Could sit, they had a little room. You could sit down in these little cubicles. There were cubicles. You could sit in with headphones on and watch. And I think smartphones destroy that now. I agree because you can't just like you can't just watch a film because you're worried about like oh. Am I checking my Twitter or my Instagram? And you don't focus That's a great as, point. as powerfully as you did before. Yeah, I also think like having friends for me and and a girlfriend or a wife, right, of course, because I didn't have anything else to do yeah. but sit. I mean, it was there was the time where going to the video store and renting four VHS tapes, oh, yeah. and that was going to be my day. That was my weekend. That yeah. was like the greatest thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this world is different. Um, <laughs> It's time for Hitchcock to go to Hollywood. David O. Selznick gives him the call. Mm -hmm. um, and the first film he makes is maybe his most critically successful, which is Rebecca. Yeah. Uh, which I have seen. I have almost no memory of it. Right. The Olivier one. Olivier, yeah. Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine, right. Um, he wins Best Picture. Wins Best Picture. Yeah. He does not win Best Director. Right. And he doesn't like this movie very much. He feels that this is not really a Hitchcock movie. Oh, wow. Be and it's, it's interesting to hear him say this because he defined like this is what i do right and he he really wanted to do that thing that he did and he didn't feel he felt this was more like him being a work for hire his first time in hollywood he's the script was picked for him Ooh. and he did you know and he did it and obviously it's very successful yeah. but it wasn't what he wanted the thing that he wants is a thing the thing that he says i just reread the uh hitchcock truffaut which mm -hmm. is uh, francois truffaut's interviews with hitchcock from the mid 60s they're fantastic mm -hmm. and what's so great about this book is that it is very clear. I mean, obviously, Truffaut is a film critic who became a great director. Yeah. And it's very clear that Hitchcock respects him because, and they're really talking as filmmakers. Yeah. Because 
Truffaut will say, I didn't really like this movie. This is where you got it. I think you got it wrong. And Hitchcock goes, yes, that is where I got it wrong. <laughs> and I should have done this. And they don't agree on everything. Right. And, and Hitch or, or, or Truffaut will say, well, I think it seemed like you did this because you wanted to have this effect. And Hitchcock goes, yes, that is exactly why I did it. It's a very, and it's an in-depth, very honest conversation about all his films. Wow. And the thing that he repeats over and over again is this idea of pure cinema. Mm-hmm. In that what Hitchcock, and it's trying to figure out what exactly he means by it, but I think what it is, is that it's the experience where you, through shots, not through dialogue, right. be, understand emotionally and become emotionally connected to what's happening in the film, right. you know, is that, and, and one of the examples is, and I'll just be a little film geeky, but um, is, uh, do you know what the Kuleshov effect is? No. Okay, so this is this is big film geek stuff. Okay, so Kuleshov is some scientist, some psychi, you know, brain guy in Russia okay. in the twenties, and he does an experiment. And the experiment is this: he has a picture of a man, mm-hmm. and then and he has an audience watch this, and they it's like a slideshow. You see the picture of a man, and then you see um, a uh, bowl of soup, and then he asks the audience, "What what is the man's facial expression?" And they go, "Oh, he's hungry." And then you see a picture of a man, you see a beautiful woman. What is his facial expression? He's like, oh, he's in love. And you see the picture of the man and a little child in a coffin, dead child. God. What, what is he feeling? And they say, oh, he was really sad. And of course, the trick is, is that it's the same picture it's of the, the man. the same picture of the man, yeah. So this is called the Kuleshov effect. Oh. And if you want, what I would highly recommend is that you can go on YouTube and you can actually look at these exact pictures. Wow. I don't think they work that well. Okay. So instead, this is what you should search for. You should go on YouTube and you should search for Alfred Hitchcock. Kuleshov effect oh. and he explains it and he does exactly this and it's except that you're looking at Alfred Hitchcock right. looking at a beautiful woman or a child or something like that <laughs> of course. and it works even though you know that you're looking at the same clip of Alfred Hitchcock it 100% works and he describes this as pure cinema is that you are seeing two shots juxtaposed together mm-hmm. and they are giving you a feeling and that he wants mostly that feeling to be one of suspense, of stress, and he is constantly thinking about how can I manipulate the audience mm-hmm. through my ch- selection of shots. And he is, I really believe, among the clearest, most pristine filmmakers there is mm-hmm. in terms of this shot is here for this reason and it is telling you this and making you feel this. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This idea, and, I, and I'm trying, and I wish I had a better way to, I wish I had Alfred Hitchcock right here to say, what do you really mean when you say pure cinema? Well, Steve. <laughs> um, he, he's such an, a joy to listen to in interviews. Oh, he's great. Right? It's one of the great voices of the film world. Uh, one of the most incredibly knowledgeable guys and very laid back in his delivery yeah. of these concepts and of these uh, uh, film theories or of these uh, techniques, and he's fascinating to listen to. Well, and he feels like he has figured it all out. Yes, that's. I don't think anyone really has, but right. but he has that feeling when you like he just kind of saying from on high, this mm-hmm. is what it is. Is there one rule above all others which is indispensable to a director who wants to frighten an audience? I think he should understand the psychology of audiences. He should also know that audiences love to enjoy the very thing that they have built in, and that's fear uh, that all started when the mother said boo. But for some inexplicable reason, they like to, how shall I say, put their toe in the cold water of fear to see what it's like. That's why they go for rides on switchbacks and scream and scream and, and then get off giggling. They're all trying it out. 
Um, after that, he does Foreign Correspondent, which I've never seen. I've never seen that either. Um, Another Criterion. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes. I have not seen it. Yeah. Um, and then we go to Shadow of a Doubt. And now we're starting to get into much more of the Hitchcock um, moves. That's the Joseph Cotton one. Joseph Cotton, yeah. Right. Uh, and I and I think Shadow of a Doubt is they think they suspect that he yep. is a killer. Yeah. Again, we're in this you know these yeah. things that come back over and over again. The next movie is called Suspicion. That's <laughs> right. the first movie that he's a producer on. Right. And it's about and Cary Grant is now a suspected killer. This is a fantastic film. I think I've seen it, but I don't remember. I saw it on TCM. It's incredible. They all think and it's you start to like initially you're like oh the person is wrong she's. And then you start to believe that she's right, that Cary Grant is this killer, and the way it all comes out at the end, it's fantastic. Suspicion is so good, but that's what you start to see with uh, Hitchcock as he progresses, as he gets older with his work, that you see that there is even more precision in the uh, suspense, even yeah. more precision in the thrills, so that he, you are willingly going along with his manipulation of you yeah. because you know you're in great hands of a great filmmaker, and he will pay it off for you way more often than not. And so these things, you're like, you're willing to let yourself go and vacillate back and forth about the suspicion of, so to speak, of the main character in most of his movies. Well, what's so important to him is that what he says is that when the movie's not working emotionally, it's because it wasn't clear enough. Yeah. Is that you have to understand, you have to know the geography. You have to know where everybody's been. You have to see that they grabbed their purse or that there was an orange string on this fabric. Or Mm -hmm. You have to see that stuff and understand exactly what it means because he is manipulating exactly what the audience knows and what they don't know. It has to be super, super clear. We go next to Saboteur. We're in 1942 now, middle of the war. And Saboteur, we see another thing that we're going to see with Hitchcock a lot, which is that he likes to mix the big and the small. Yeah. Is that we're seeing a really big image of something and then a tiny, tiny detail. And one of them here, which we'll see later on, very similar in North by Northwest, mm-hmm. is the final climax is on the Statue of Liberty, yeah. hanging from the torch. And so you have this really big hand, and then you cut to the holding on to the fabric and the fabric starting to tear and the detail of that and intercutting those two things just perfectly to build a suspenseful moment. Yeah. Now we get to one of my favorites, Lifeboat. Lifeboat. Absolutely, bro. We and you are in the me and you, are, me, you and I are in the same lifeboat about lifeboat. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and this is and this he really did as a challenge. Like, is it possible? Here's this person who likes the big and the small. He likes all sorts of options and visuals. And it's like we're going to tell an entire story with a bunch of people on a lifeboat in the middle of the water, and it is suspenseful and intense. And something I should have said a long time ago is mm. way back in The Lodger was also, which is kind of the first Hitchcocky film in the silent era, that's his first cameo. Oh, walking by right. on the street in The Lodger. Yeah. And of course, we get in from that point forward, he appeared as a person on the street, getting onto a train yeah. on, in, in every single one of his movies. And then we get to Lifeboat. Yep. How is he going to have a cameo <laughs> where there's only eight or nine people living on this lifeboat? Right. Do you remember it? That, isn't he out in the water like one of the people that fell in the water? That was his first idea. Okay. Was he's going to be a dead body. Right. But then he was worried people wouldn't really be able to see him. And what it finally is, is that he is in an advertisement in a newspaper. That's right. For weight loss, yes, because he had actually lost a, a lot of weight, <laughs> and so there's a before and after picture, and um, Genius. it's and it says and it says and let me find the name of the 
uh, Reducto is the name of the weight loss product. And he got tons, the studio and him got tons of letters from fat people saying, where do I get this Reducto? Um, one other thing about Lifeboat, a couple of things about Lifeboat. Uh, originally, it was a script by John Steinbeck. Oh, wow. Um, okay. and then, but he and Steinbeck, they didn't quite get along. And so he ends up bringing in another writer. Mm-hmm. And it's a story of, you know, it's middle of World War II. Uh, a sh- passenger ship has been sunk. Mm-hmm. We're on the lifeboat, and there's a German on the lifeboat. Mm-hmm. And can we trust him or not trust him? And right. it's all about, again, these ideas of trust. And suspicion. And suspicion. Right. And, and the other thing that it's about, this is what Hitchcock says, is that there are people on the lifeboat are from all different social structures. Right. They have all different political points of view. They're not people that can get along. And in the end, the they have to unite to protect themselves from this German. Right. And Hitchcock was like, thematically, this was the middle of World War II. And he felt all the allies, this is a message of all the allies mm-hmm. having to unite together to fight against the Axis in World War II. That's great. That's great. And this is like, uh, what's his face that played Babe Ruth? Is it William Bendix? Mm, I think so. This is maybe his greatest performance as an actor. Mm. Like, because, I mean, he's known for playing Babe Ruth in that uh, 1940s Babe Ruth movie. But here, he's really good as the pugnacious guy who sacrifices himself for the boat yeah. because of the mistake he's made. Right. And that's what's so great about it. And when people ask me, you know, uh, when they tweet at me or they talk to me uh, about film, the young kids come up or people who know about the Shmoda and they come and talk to you what's the Hitchcock film I should see? I always tell them to start with Lifeboat. Mm. And I think because the dialogue is so crisp here, yeah. the way Hitchcock builds the suspension or the, the suspicion and the tension throughout the movie from just dialogue, just dialogue between people and people's natural tendencies to be suspicious about certain situations. Right. And then how that changes depending on what is happening and who's on whose side and whatever, like all through the whole movie, allegiances shift throughout. And that's fascinating fascinating to watch. Uh, so I always say start there because it's also the most stripped down. They're just in a boat. Yeah. And it's also the most, and Hume Cronin's in this thing. Yeah. It's the most stripped down you'll see of any film that Hitchcock does, but which makes it really important for him to be Technically precise and uh, uh, yeah, and and brilliant with his delivery. There's no margin for error Scenes. in a movie yeah. like Lifeboat. Yeah, and, and and the stakes are so high. I think yeah. that's it. It's like Hitchcock is not about like let's do a movie about a relationship. Right. Let's do, he wants the stakes to be at the top. And that's why he wants. Yeah, and expose the human condition. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game. Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. 
Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Um, so with Cary Grant, we introduced one of his first long-term collaborations, and we're about to introduce another one, which is Ingrid Bergman and Spellbound oh, in Spellbound. 1945. Yeah, man. Um, which is a really interesting, it's not, my, it's not one of my favorites, mm -hmm. but it's really interesting, and he definitely had an obsession with Ingrid Bergman, mm -hmm. definitely. And what, this is something, you know, we're kind of getting get into of like <laughs> how Hitchcock was with the actresses that he worked with, mm -hmm. how he felt about them, how he treated them, what kind of roles he put them in yeah. is sort of interesting. And I think Ingrid Bergman is sort of the first big obsession of mm -hmm. his. Um, Spellbound also has a uh, Salvador Dali dream sequence, yeah. which is really uh, great. Um, so another thing he starts doing here was because he likes tricks and he wanted to get like a POV shot where you saw past someone's hand, but because of the lensing and because of everything you want to see in the frame, it didn't work until he built a giant wood hand. Oh, and this is something he ended up doing a lot, which is build these giant props or giant things. So in perspective, they would look like the right size right. to do the shot that he would want to do. <laughs> That's great. Now we get to what I think might be in my top two, oh. which is notorious. Oh Yeah. Great film. Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, Claude Rains, script by Ben Hecht. Again, we're in this because what this plot is, is that Ingrid Bergman uh, is, is needs to spy on Claude Rains right. and ends up having to marry him. And there's a love triangle with Cary Grant. And it is upsetting and stressful. And again, we're in this... Claude Rains can't trust, doesn't know that he can't trust his wife right. and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't actually love him. Um, it is a really stressful, really beautifully, beautifully made movie. Mm -hmm. um, and one other detail about this is again, the MacGuffin, what's the MacGuffin going to be? And they're like, oh, it's going to be secret plants. It's going to be this. It's going to be uh, diamonds that were, you know, industrial diamonds to cut things that the Germans need or right. something like that. And then, and then uh, Hitchcock comes with the idea, no, it's going to be uranium that they need to use to build the atom bomb. Well, this is before the Manhattan Project. Right. So, first of all, the studio is like, I don't know what you're talking. What do you mean an atom bomb? <laughs> Nobody and they don't they don't even want to put it in the movie because they're like, well, this this is ridiculous. There's yeah. no such thing. Right. Well, then the FBI hears about it and they go to Hitchcock and say, "How do you know about where did you get this idea?" And he said, mm -hmm. "Oh, well, I read Einstein's whatever. Yeah. You know, I knew such a thing was possible and you're probably working on it." And they go, okay. And the <laughs> FBI monitored Alfred Hitchcock for a year. Wow. Because they wanted to know how he found out about the Manhattan Project. Don't mess with Hoover, man. <laughs> I know, right? Rope. Rope is great. Great movie. Tight, concise, almost a stage play. <laughs> and yeah. a, a, a couple of friends of mine recently did a stage play of it here in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. Of Rope? Or of Rope. Of, or of Leopold and Loeb. No, Rope. A Rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A fascinating uh, uh, film, absolutely. Yeah, it's so it's his first color film. Mm -hmm. It's based on the Leopold and Loeb murders. Right. And it was, I think it was a stage play first. And he comes up with this idea, which is so anti his whole way of filmmaking. His whole way of filmmaking is based on the cut. Right. It's based on my, I look at this and I see this and you see that I see this. Well, and so what he does is he goes, I wonder since it's a play, if it's possible and it's a play that all takes place in one time in one place, would it be possible to film it all in one time in one place and not cut at all? 
And so the length of a reel of film is 10, 12 minutes, I think. Mm -hmm. And so they go, well, can we do it in just 10 shots? And that is what rope is. It's a film in 10 shots. They, the only way that they could reload was that the camera would have to go to Jimmy Stewart's back, Mm -hmm. which was black. And then they would put a new reel in Mm -hmm. and then they would start shooting again. The, the the level of difficulty of this is so high yeah. and the precision has to be so great. Um, and they did 10 days of rehearsal, which isn't that much. Yeah. Shot the movie in 18 days. Wow. But here's what's weird about that. Every shot is 10, 12 minutes long mm-hmm. and you only have 10 shots in the whole film. Hmm. So what that means is there are eight days of their 18 day shoot where they got nothing. Oh, yeah. Because they only were successful because there's only 10 shots yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's how, and they were flying walls in and out in order mm. to get the, because the camera's big in these days. Right. They're moving, you know, they're moving light pieces. They're moving, I mean, like the, so many things have to be exactly right to make this work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really dig this film. And it, me too. And once again, it's like, it. you like the dichotomy of the characters, right? Jimmy Stewart is what, one of their former teachers or something like yeah. that. And they're trying to impress him. By uh, you know having committed this murder, there's the big chest. There's the uh, interaction. Right, the body's in a chest. The body's in the chest. The interaction between the two kids who are trying. One is so nervous and can't figure out. The other one is so is the alpha, obviously, and his hubris, his confidence of wanting to get one over on his teacher. In the middle of a function get together with his girlfriend and all this kind of no, it's the parents of oh, the, the parents, kid they I'm killed. Sorry. Yeah, parents so of the, the kid, kid they killed. They don't yeah. know that their kid's dead body yeah. is in the chest. It's morbid. That that well, and this is one of the things about Hitchcock. The dinner party is that is that the thing to understand about that Hitchcock thought this was funny. Yep. There is a there is a well, and and this is the thing is that I I don't know quite how to express it, but if we took this really seriously, these would be really depressing movies because they're horrible. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want, he wants you to be stressed about it and tense about it, but he also wants you to be titillated on some level. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and what he says, and which I think is really interesting, is that if you watch a burglar go into a house and he's going through things, you're actually with the burglar worried about the burglar getting caught. Oh, of course. As soon as you're, someone else comes, you might be with them wanting to catch mm-hmm. the burglar. Mm-hmm. Is that we actually like being bad and with the bad people mm-hmm. who are about to commit the murder or commit the crime or blow the thing up or whatever it is. Right. And so the scene, So we have in Rope this scene with these two guys who are psychopaths. They've killed this kid. They put right. this kid in the chest. They put the buffet food on top of yeah. the chest, invited their teacher and the kid's family to come and then there's this scene where in the background, the dinner's over and everyone's talking. They're sitting on the couch and they also have like a, a, a maid or a cook or someone who's, mm-hmm. who's been serving at this meal. And she is coming and she is clearing off the chest. Right. She's bringing the food to the kitchen and that's in the foreground. Right. And we're just sitting here a long time listening to this conversation and you're getting stressed yeah, because you know yeah. the body's in the chest. Right, right. And you, she's going to uncover it. And even though the guys are the bad guys and you want them discovered and punished, you also don't want her to uncover. And there's this moment after she clears all the food off and then there's like a tablecloth yeah. and she folds up the tablecloth and she reaches to open up the chest to right. put the tablecloth in and just as she does that one of the guys come in oh that's enough why yeah. don't you head home we're good for now yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. it is a scene where it's literally just people talking and a woman clearing off dishes and it is so stressful mm-hmm. and this is what he means by suspense yeah this is suspense is that we are 100 percent involved and part of it is is that we know something and most of the people in the audience in the in the movie don't know it right they are not aware of the body in the chest and we know it's there right 
That's a great movie. <laughs> I, it's funny. I don't think Rope would be the first. It w- certainly wouldn't be the first one I would recommend. No, the people see, but I do think it's a, a, a technical masterpiece. Well, and I think having watched the other ones and appreciated the other ones makes you understand and appreciate Rope. Yeah. So next film is again Ingrid Bergman under Capricorn. I have never seen it. I've never seen that. Don't know it. Then we get to Strangers on a Train. Yeah. Another great film. Mm-hmm. And this is the plot of two people. Each wants someone dead. They're complete strangers. You do my murder. I'll do your murder. Also known as Throw Mama from the Train. Also yeah. Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> By the way, I, I think I only saw Strangers of the Train yeah. because I love Throw Mama from the Train. And then I went back and watched it. Yeah, man. But I think I've seen Throw Mama from the Train more. <laughs> um, uh, I Confess is after that, uh, which uh, I don't think I've seen. Neither have I. Um, and now we're moving into the peak. Yeah. We start with Dial M for Murder. Oh, so good. I think it's great. He hates it. <laughs> it's one of Hitchcock's least favorite. Wow. Yeah. This is where someone has arranged to have their wife be killed. Mm-hmm. And here we meet another of the really important people for Hitchcock, and that is Grace, Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly, yeah. yeah. And Ray Milland, right, is in this thing? Yeah, Ray Milland is in it. And it's 3D. It was his first. That's right. Yeah, it was shot in 3D. I saw it in 3D. Really? At the, in Santa Monica, the Arrow, at the Arrow Theater. Wow. They had a 3D screening of it, and I remember going to see it in 3D. And it was enjoyable as hell because the 3D wasn't done like poking in your right. eye type 3D. It was like logical within the flow mm. of the movie, and I enjoyed I the hell out of it. I would love to that. see that. Yeah, and it's, it's the first time I saw it. Was in that theater in 3D. My memory, I think, is my dad loved this movie. Oh, yeah, I okay. think. I have to ask my mom again. It's a really good movie that's also stressful as hell. Yeah. What happens with Grace. And poor Grace, once again, putting Grace in these positions where she can get found out or hurt or injured physically by the people, the men involved in these situations. We'll see that in Rear Window later on. But yeah, certainly here. This is the thing. And uh, there's some quotes. She's a young actress that, too. that he, his treatment, portrayal, both his treatment as a director of women yeah, yeah. and his portrayal of women, I think these are great movies. Yeah, right. But taken as a whole, you're like, man, there's a lot of women being put in horrible situations, mm-hmm. abused, manipulated, have no power, have no agency, or just not nice mothers. Right, you know, right. this is a lot of stuff. It's like, <laughs> what are your real feelings here, Alfred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, oh, good point. Yeah, you know, well, almost involved in all these though, Steve. So it's an interesting. Like di- dynamic between them to create something like th- these movies like this. I mean, you can't help if you're going to make films and for a long time and have total artistic control. Yeah, you can't help that having be a bit of a you look at it as a whole and see it a personality. You see your that's your worldview. That's true. You know that Very is true. what it is. And now we get to the movie that we are not going to talk about too much <laughs> because we're about to do a whole cinephiles episode. It might be a two parter, and that is Rear Window. Yeah, Rear Window. I think, and this is all I'll say about it at this point, this might be the ultimate Hitchcock film. It's not my favorite Hitchcock. I agree. But in terms of it is the voyeur who is watching, everything Mm -hmm. is from shot, POV, and back, and all the emotions taken in that way. Mm -hmm. That I believe that is what he means by pure cinema. This is my most stressful movie of the Hitchcock Mm. uh, oeuvre, would you say? Uh, because I am, I do not stalk. I do not peer into windows. I don't like to know people's business. Uh, who I work, who I live with, right. I, I keep to myself where I live, and I don't inter. Like I barely say hi to people I, uh, I live in the same apartment building with because I 
just want to keep to myself. I don't want to know what's going on there because I don't want them to call me at 1 a.m. to come over right. and help them with a situation. And I don't want them <laughs> to be involved in my situation and know what the hell I'm doing and see my comings and goings. And so to see a film that is fully dedicated uh, to this man with the broken leg who's frustrated and angry, Jimmy Stewart, yeah. looking through his lens at everyone else's lives and witnessing a murder uh, like he does, uh, that uh, Raymond Burr does, you're just like... Oh my God! This is too. This is why, uh, whenever I've had any girlfriend who likes to like look out the window and and monitor people's or occasionally sneak in look into people's apartments, I'm like, you're going to get us killed. Please yeah. stop. It is my paranoia. And so have. So, and I only well, saw. That, well, that's the thing though. That's yeah. what's so weird about this movie. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no. But I got very excited. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> of course. Is that it? Kind of begins with he's the person watching. Yeah. And he has all the power. Yes. They don't know he's watching. It's secret. He's invisible on some level. Yeah. And then what it becomes is because he has been watching, mm-hmm. he is the most frail. Yes. He's trapped. Yep. Anyone can come after him. And I shouldn't say quite the most frail because he's going to put Grace Kelly in a situation yeah. that's going to be even worse. Um, it is a it's a really well made movie, yep. and we will talk about it more on the cinephiles. And the cinephiles. <laughs> um, uh, next, we have to catch a thief again. Oh, again, Grace Kelly. Great again. Film. You know what? Not my favorite. Really? Yeah. Oh, I think it's a very nice change of pace for him. It's fun to capture this flirty romance between yep. these two. He, this isn't a, this kind of vibe I had not seen in a Hitchcock film until To Catch a Thief. This kind of easygoing flirtation. There's a lightness to it. Yes. It's fun. I yeah. gr- but I just don't go back to it. Okay, you know, Fair enough. we got a long list of movies we here do. that I really like a lot. Very smooth, Cary Grant um, performance. Um, and then this is what, and I just what happens in this decade with him is just remarkable mm. because we had. 1954 is Dial In For Murder. Mm-hmm. 1954 is also Rear Window. Two movies that year. 55 is Catch a Thief. 55, he also launches Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. You know, and this is so, I can't begin to tell you how bizarre this is mm-hmm. in terms of what people thought about television at this time. Yeah. Because there was movies, which was big and important, and all the cool people did that. And there was TV, which is crap. Yeah. And to have a top director go, oh, you know what, I want to do, not only do I want to do this TV thing, but I want to be the center of it. I want to be the face of it. I want to be the, introduce all the episodes and have, and make them be really high quality, which they were. Yeah. That is totally, totally bizarre at this era. Yeah. And I would say this and Twilight Zone from that era are the two series that still hold up and still can unsettle you and scare you. And also, like, make you question a lot of things when you watch it. It's so funny. I watched a ton of Twilight Zone over and over and over again, mm-hmm. obsessively. I've seen some Alfred Hitchcock presents, but not nearly as much. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I grew up on them. And I just loved them so much. Um, yeah. And I love Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and then in 1956, it's the same. Next year, he does the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Right. Now, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. Um uh, another real good movie. Uh, I have never seen the next one, which is The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda. Oh, yeah. That's a cool film. I enjoyed that. I think I saw it years and years ago. But this, once again, The Wrong Man, right? This idea of false oh, accusation. False accusation. Yeah. No, we're in the same. Well, and what's, you know, the the uh, suspicion is happening in Rear Window. Yeah. To catch a thief, you discover the person you're with is a criminal. Again, right. we're in the same range. Yeah. Um, uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much is a story of someone who's suddenly in the midst of something that they don't understand, yep. which is another theme. You know, it's like you're bit getting put in that jail cell. What's going on? What's happening to right. me? You know, like these themes... It, it, it's not subtle. And and then, and that's 1957, yeah. 1958, Vertigo. Vertigo, man. Now, this is my favorite. 
I, it's my favorite too. Mm-hmm. I think it's Vertigo one and Notorious might be second. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I have to. I haven't watched Notorious in a while, okay. so I need to watch. But but that's kind of. I remember the first time I saw Notorious, just blown away, and the first time I saw Vertigo, that movie fucked me up. Yeah, man. It's a you know, and you say this the way he treated men or women rather in his films, but this is his destruction of men. Pure and simple, this obsessive idea, this obsessive desire to control a woman, to make her look a certain way for his own satisfaction because his ego won't let it go. Um, and I bet people in the when they saw it in the 50s, I bet a majority of people were like, oh, they feel bad for Jimmy Stewart that, got, that he got caught up in his obsession. But when you look at it now, you see a man who is... Uh, uh, who is, I don't know, it's not a, you wouldn't say psychopath, but there is a uh, naked desire to have his needs met and at anybody's expense. He's a very unstable person mentally. Oh, yeah. And to make him, to do the thing, and making Jimmy, and casting Jimmy Stewart is a stroke of genius. This everyman, this hero of the people from the 40s, to now explore this ugly underside of men in the, in a time when men are like you know so powerful in this country, it was it's such a great film for. That. I think it is it is the most vulnerable of him since the moment on the bridge in It's a Wonderful Life. I agree with you that. You know, and in a lot of ways, it's way more vulnerable. Because, yes, because George Bailey is a great guy. Yes, he is. This guy, what he is doing is mm-hmm. rough. Well, in this we go into like, okay, what is he doing? Well, he's completely controlling and manipulating the image of this woman to mm-hmm. turn her into what he wants her mm-hmm. to be. Man, Alfred Hitchcock with no, no, we don't have Grace Kelly. And he's what's right. he doing? He's got Kim Novak and he's trying to turn yeah. her into something. You know, we don't have, you know, he was angry when Ingrid Bergman went off with Rossellini. Mm-hmm. He, you know, now Grace Kelly has left to go off to be a princess in Monaco. Yeah. You know, like he, what he is doing in these films to women is, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, it's a great movie. But like, well, and this is where you go to where like, what is the movie and what is the filmmaker? Right, right. You know, right. And to some degree, thinking about it more now, I'm like, mm-hmm. this is kind. Of, you know, you know what it is is that Woody Allen, I think, has used his neuroses mm-hmm. and his craziness to make great films, mm-hmm. and it's very clear that this is what, you know, this is what it is. Yeah. And I th- actually think Alfred Hitchcock, strangely enough, is the same. Yeah. Which is that that little boy. This is what we do to boys who are naughty mm-hmm. in that jail cell. And his strange, you know, he's a virgin when he got married. Mm-hmm. There's a very strange story where he and Alma end up at a, a brothel in Paris. Um, and they're just both completely naive, but he is fascinated with sex. He's fascinated. Mm-hmm. His movies have this underbelly of the of kind of dark sexual elements yeah, to them yeah. because he is this nerdy, neurotic, very frightened person who is fascinated with the violent, the purient, the mm-hmm. the sexual, the deviant, all of that is the stuff that he's into. Yeah. You know, and that is and he's afraid of the police and afraid, you know, mm-hmm. like afraid of everything around him. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course right after Vertigo, North by Northwest. Oh, a great film. 1959. Cary Grant. Yeah. Eva Marie Saint. And uh, Martin Landau. This was one of the movies that was over and over again in film school. Yeah. They just brought it up for, for sound design, for shot construction, for, uh, again, setting up the MacGuffins, setting mm-hmm. up all the storytelling, all the other the climax up at, the, at Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I don't love it as much as I think. Oh. 
I mean, no, I think it's a great movie. I'm not saying it's how I feel about To Catch a Thief. There's right. A, there's another one that people think is great that is not actually one of mine. Okay. That we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. We're a couple, like three or four movies away. Okay. But uh, I really like North by Northwest, yeah. but I don't love it like I love Rear Window or Vertigo or... I don't think Cary Grant was the best leading man for him uh, for Hitchcock, but not because Cary Grant's not a great actor, obviously, or didn't, you know, didn't have a legacy in film. It's more a matter of, I think... There wasn't as much depth to Carrie as there was to Jimmy Stewart or some of these other actors that have come through and been the lead in his movies. And I think he kept coming back to Cary Grant because maybe he saw in himself, once again, because he's a British guy, yep. good-looking, thin, charming, matinee idol, charming, everything Hitchcock isn't. Yep. So there is this desire to put him in these films in a way to kind of work out his own shit from as a kid feeling lesser than with the you know the college quarterback or whatever you want to say uh, uh, or the good looking guy in the room it's funny i think when he needed the everyman and maybe wanted to get inside the everyman mm. he goes with jimmy stewart sure and when he needed the 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 person who was elegant and charming that needed to get taken down a little bit yeah or we wanted to be a little suspicious about then we go with Cary grant or olivier or olivier right. that's a good that's a mm -hmm. good point too um psycho yeah man I, I just want to take a moment to go back what of what this we just said. Yeah. 54 dial in for murder, 54 rear window, 55 to catch a thief. Starts the TV show in 55, which he's directing for and part of. Yeah. 56, man who knew too much. 57, the wrong man. 58, vertigo. 59, north by northwest. 1960, psycho. Yeah. What a run. Yeah. I mean, and psycho he makes with his TV crew. He makes it for eight hundred thousand dollars, which is in most of his movies are like two, three, four million. He couldn't get point. it funded. Yeah, with that the whole movie of Hitchcock that with Hopkins is all about him making Psycho, and he could not get. You just went through this whole run of films, and he still couldn't get Psycho funded. Crazy. It's insane. And Psycho, I Psycho is one of the weirdest constructed movies of all time mm -hmm. because you meet this person. And the way movies work, you meet this person, well, they're going to be the main character. Yeah. And we're very, again, lots of suspense about this woman, Janet Lee, who's stolen this money, and right. is she going to get away with it? And she gets this motel, and she meets this guy, and then 38 minutes into the movie or something like that, she's dead. Mm -hmm. You know, from the one of the most important film scenes, murders in all of film history, yeah. in the shower scene, yeah. um, scored by Bernard Herrmann, of course. And then now the movie is completely different. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's nothing like that. No, and but I will say to you, it's not one of my favorites of his. Right. It isn't. And I've tr I've gone back and watched it. I don't think, yeah, I, I get the scene. I get Norman Bates and I get the, icon the iconography of that character and what he, you know, spawned so many sequels. A TV show called Bates Motel. Right. A, a place you can go to Universal Studios for decades. A shot-by-shot shot remake that my wife worked on. That's Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, this, yep. uh, the Gus Van Sant one. Yeah. So people are obsessed with this movie, and I get it, but I, I don't revere it as much as his other ones. But that being said, there are some great, great scenes. The Martin Balsam death scene is incredible uh, in, the, in the helplessness and the shock of it, right? He's just so calm, just coming up the stairs. All of a sudden, out it's of horrible. nowhere, this this man dressed as a woman comes out with a nightmare, just completely stabs this guy, shockingly, and the camera follows him down the stairs. It's incredible. And that is a trick. Again, that's this sort of trick shot yeah. that Alfred Hitchcock invented for this thing, just like the he doing the Zolly, which is the 
track back, zoom in for the vertigo effect. Yes. These are, you know, these are this techniques that he's invented for things. Yeah. By the way, I do have to say one thing about the Gus Van Sant thing, because it's my one of my oh, wife's favorite sure. stories, which is she worked on that. She was in the accounting department for 90, Psycho 98 or whatever it was. And at their finishing shooting and they need to shoot an insert and they need a hand double for Julianne Moore. And they go around with these rings to see who they can find who has really small fingers to fit these rings. And the only person the rings fit is my wife. Oh, wow. So she gets in Julianne Moore's costume. She's wearing Julianne Moore's ring. She has makeup on her hands. She's being directed by Gus Van Sant to turn to be the shot where the body is turned around in the chair mm -hmm. where you see dead mom. And <laughs> that was going to be my wife's hands. And then they ended up bringing someone else in to do it. Oh, geez. Okay. She thought that he, Gus Van Sant thought my wife's arms didn't look uh, like they would match. So he needed some other arms. So they found other arms to cast. I guess so. But she was directed briefly by Gus Van Sant cool. in the horrible and ridiculously stupid yes. shot for shot remake of Psycho. Yeah. The Birds. Mm-hmm. See, and this is, we start entering into a period of his work where I'm not 100% enjo uh, enjoying like the birds. I don't like the birds. Yeah, I've seen the birds like three or four times. People love it. Yeah, my mom loves the birds. Yeah, it's shot right. It, it's it's meant to be right where I grew up, mm -hmm. near where I grew up. It's Bodega Bay, in Northern California. Um, we have Tippy Hedren. He doesn't have. Yes. This is where like Jimmy Stewart's too old. Grace Kelly's in Monaco. Ingrid Bergman's gone, and so he goes. I'm going to turn Tippy Hedren into my new Grace Kelly. Yeah, and from everything we've heard, he is. Horrible to Absolutely her. horrible to her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Abusive, sexually harasses her. Mm -hmm. At one point, she's like strapped into a cage and they're flinging birds at her and, you know, for days at a time and he's yelling at her. Because and... she wouldn't respond to his sexual advances. Yeah. And so it, it, it angers him. That loss of manhood, uh, once you get to that age, it's terrible. Like not that situation, what he did confronting yeah. that situation is terrible. Yeah, and, and the birds is not a movie. I, and by the way, Technically brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things in the birds where you go like, wow, this is still obviously a master craftsman. I don't dig the movie. And this is sort of like, yeah. we're going to head downhill. It's a simple movie. Yeah. They stole two lovebirds. Everybody, so the birds come in and, you know, go after you. It's, it's you know, it and it doesn't, the special effects are kind of cheesy now. And At this point, they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we go into Marnie again with Tippi Hedren and, yeah. and Sean Connery, Sean Connery which yeah. is good. And then after that, there's really nothing that I care that much mm -hmm. about. Torn Curtain, Topaz. Frenzy. By the time we get to Topaz, the studio wouldn't let him use Bernard Herrmann anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like one of the great film composers of all time. Yeah. Did 15 years of the greatest Hitchcock movies ever made. And they say, no, he actually composed a score for Topaz. Right. Studio didn't like it. And they tossed it and brought in somebody else. You believe that? Mm. And he doesn't have Robert Burks, who's been his uh, cinematographer forever. Um, Frenzy 1972 is fairly successful. I've seen it once. But I didn't love it. Yeah. Family pot, Plot, I might have seen once since the cruise ship. Yeah. It's pretty good. This Bruce Dern. Yeah. Um, uh, he receives his knighthood in 1980 and is too ill to attend. There is like an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And then right before he dies, he's quite ill. And he dies on April 29th, 1980. Wow. Yeah. So what, 1889 he was born? 1898. 1898. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, a, it, but it is a, it, you know, a guy in his 70s. He's, yeah. you know, the fact that his last set of films are not quite at the level. I mean, you, that run from, oh, yeah. from Dial M for Murder through Psycho, yeah. and many people would include The Birds and Marnie yeah. in that run. That's an amazing run of films. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. One of the things I just want to go back one more time to this idea of how he treated women. 
there there's a, a there's an essay from Laura Mulvey uh on the ideas of the male gaze and this is a kind of feminist theory mm -hmm. idea that's that's people have talked about it, and that Hitchcock is really an example if all the women in his films are almost always objects mm -hmm. you know they are the cold severe blonde they they don't generally have agency they don't have control of their lives they're being viewed in the shower you know to be killed and there, there are two quotes that i liked uh roger ebert wrote they were blonde they were icy and remote they were imprisoned in costumes and subtly combined fashion with fetishism they mesmerized the men who often had physical or psychological ha handicaps sooner or lady later every hitchcock woman was humiliated mm-hmm and I think that's true. There's another quote that's even more horrible, which is there's the vamp, the tramp, the snitch, the witch, the stink, the double crosser, and best of all, the demon mommy. Don't worry. They all get punished in the end. <laughs> oh, wow. And you know what? That's true. It's yeah. a fair criticism. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't mean to say these things to say that he's not a great filmmaker nope. or that these aren't great films. Right. I do say that, you know. Just as the themes of suspicion and guilt and uh, the wrong person put in the middle of the situation are go throughout the film, the f the themes of how he treats women also go throughout the films. Yeah, you have to take a filmmaker, and that's the thing that's uh, um, all of us have to understand about the art and the artist. If you're going to take a filmmaker, you got to take the filmmaker warts and all. Yep. And then to make an accurate assessment of him or her, you have to take them warts and all. And this is certainly an issue that uh, Hitchcock had. And of course, he's of that time where women were objects in his mind, and so they these films worked back then, and they still do work, most of them. But they when they move when he moves away from like Lifeboat, no one's really an object in Lifeboat. Right. Those are the kinds of films that I enjoy, or or uh, well, I guess Rope a little bit because of the girlfriend or whatever they they don't treat her that well uh, um, by shutting her off from place to place the whole time. Here's the thing. There are some movies that we've talked about that we've kind of said, you know what, we're not going to do that movie. Yeah. It's important, but at this point, I you yeah. know, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't think that's true of any of Hitchcock's films because what yeah. I think it is, I think it's only taken in total. Yeah. It's like if you look at 30 films or 50 films yeah. and you say, wow, in 28 of these, none of these individually are so horribly offensive. Mm -hmm. It's just taken as a whole that you kind of do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I still think as films, they're they'll rock you well yeah and i think the actresses coming out and speaking about it too yeah well, you hear the stories that or, yeah um uh one more thing i wanted to say about yeah. hitchcock is because it's he is held up and rightly so as one of the great meticulous planners and visionaries of mm -hmm. film from the script through storyboards through shot selection every single thing that he was going to shoot he had planned out in detail in advance to the point and i just found this out which i find shocking he didn't even look through the viewfinder of the camera because he had a relationship with the cinematographer, and he's this was the storyboard. Wow. This is what you were supposed to shoot, and so he knew what the that's that's what it was going to be. He knew yeah. the lens, he knew the angle, he had built the set exactly to his specifications. But I also just have to always push back on the idea of the genius filmmaker who has everything in their minds because right. it's just not possible. <laughs> but if anyone did, Hitchcock and maybe Kubrick are the two guys who are closest to that vision. What about Wells? No, you wouldn't say Wells? Oh, God, no, because Wells is always changing things. Yeah, he was. You're He's right. impulsive. That's right. He is yeah. very impulsive. You know, he, you know, his quote is, I plan everything in advance and then I let it all go when I get on the set. Yeah. You know, he, he's impulsive. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, you look like, did you watch? I haven't watched uh, Other Side of the Wind yet. Okay. I, I mean to, and maybe we'll do it as a Patreon yeah. to kind of talk about I it. I think we should. But I did watch the documentary on him. The documentary is great. It's great. Yeah. But you see 
like he's like okay we're gonna do this today yeah. and they start to do it and it's like now we're gonna do that yeah and he just changes his mind constantly yeah yeah that's that is not that is the opposite of the point they'll love me when i'm dead they'll love me when I, it's a really good doc yeah. on netflix as far as wells documentaries go that one's incredible yeah so uh this is the beginning of our month of hitchcock we are con- going to continue next week with our exploration of Rear Window. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know at this moment if it's going to be a one-parter or a two-parter. Right. And following Rear Window, we are going to go into, I believe, Vertigo. Vertigo. And that's going to be a two-parter, I imagine. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's going to be a yeah, two-parter. Yeah, yeah. So the, the month of Wales will either be four weeks or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very excited to finally give this great director his due. Yeah. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion, Steve, that one or t- both of these movies will be available for us to watch in the theater at one of the revival houses sometime in January. Oh. I just have a weird feeling. Mm. We, sometimes we plan things out and then they actually appear and then we're like, oh, oh if there's a ver- I've seen Vertigo maybe six times in the last two years in L.A. going to the revival house. Wow. Because it is an obs- it's an obsessive film. And it's obsession of mine because I did, remember a year or two ago they put it above Citizen Kane as the yes. best film, which is ridiculous. But I love Vertigo so much because of how the inner workings of a person's right. obsession comes out and how it ends up leading to these things. And I hate how it ends for it, him. It's it's awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's what, I'll tell you just because you brought it up. The reason I can't ever put Vertigo or really almost anything else above Citizen Kane Mm -hmm. in my mind is because Citizen Kane is unique. Yeah. And Vertigo is not. Agreed. You know what I mean? Like Lawrence of Arabia is my, I think, favorite film. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great film. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of big epics about people like T.E. Lawrence that have big sweeping landscapes. And there's nothing looks like Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane. Whereas there's a bunch of Alfred Hitchcock movies that have similar things to Vertigo. You know, like it's just... Citizen Kane is different. Yeah. It's its own category. Yeah. Um, But this is not, that was last year. Yeah. (laughs) This year is the month of Hitchcock. Um, And uh, so I think, what are you, do you have any final thoughts you would like to bring up about Alfred Hitchcock before we wrap up today? I think I would just say if you are a fan of us and you love that we're about to tackle Hitchcock, do your homework. Go and do, read some stuff. Go and watch some of the movies. Watch the movies that we're going to talk about because I guarantee you we are going to name drop scenes or characters or movies from those movies rather uh throughout our discussion of these two films so uh do yourself a favor and it's not a negative because this is great homework to have do yourself a favor and watch some of hitchcock's films and watch some of those episodes of Alfred hitchcock presents if Mm. you're a fan of mystery suspense thriller or even sometimes a little bit of psychological horror you can watch all that there in his stuff so do yourself a massive favor if you love film and give uh, Hitchcock his fair shake and then enjoy our episodes. You know what I'm going to do, uh, which I haven't done before, but I think is a good idea, is I think that's a great idea. And I'm going to put a new website up, uh, a new page on our website where you can oh. can can buy some of these Criterion yeah, collections great. that you mentioned, as well as I couldn't recommend the Hitchcock Truffaut book more it's Mm. fantastic i'll put a link for that up on the website we'll make a whole hitchcock page uh so you can check out some of that stuff and i and the only thing i would say is i'd love to hear from you what are your favorite hitchcocks like which ones do you watch over and over again which ones can you leave alone yeah let us know um we'd love to hear that um you can always reach out to us on our facebook page at the cinephile c-i-n-e-f-i-l-e-s subscribe to us at the usual places itunes youtube leave comments leave reviews um visit us on patreon we have some new stuff to announce yes i think 
think we finally figured out the best, a great way to give back to our patrons. We're going to introduce what we are calling Cinephiles Shorts. Yep. And what these are going to be is John and I are going to do 10, 15 minute discussions on films of your choosing, but we are not going to follow our old rules. Mm -hmm. Is that you can suggest a film that is within the last 10 years. You can suggest a film that is bad. Yes. <laughs> we will discuss a bad film. Sure. We're not going to do the in-depth research. We're not going to do the editing, but we're going to have fast, fun conversations about films that you're choosing. For this one, you're going to have to uh, pledge over $5 a month yeah. to suggest a film, and we are going to try to do one every single week. So that's that's Cinephile Shorts every single week on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You have to pledge in order to hear them. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to reach me, you can do so at Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can reach me on Twitter and on Instagram at the Roca John, says. should I really just start doing Instagram? Yes. Okay, I'll do it. Yes, Steve. Because I tag you all the time, and you don't, uh, and you're not on Instagram. So yes, you need to get on there. Because okay, if nothing okay. else, if you don't want to post pictures of yourself, you can post pictures of the movies we're talking about. I will, I will and, start doing. It. This is like my that. pledge to you today. I've been <laughs> I've known for a long time that I should do it. That's all right. It took lazy. Matt almost two years to do Twitter for the top ten show to promote the top ten show. It's been frustrating, but it's how social media works. Some people like it, some people don't. I just had a natural affinity for it, so it's my way. But um, I will say this. Recommend bad films. Make them interesting. Inter well, I don't want to do Friday the 13th Part 10, okay? Well, here's the thing. Make them there, interesting there, bad There's going to be some requirements, which is, one, if I haven't seen it, I'm not really going to talk about it. Right. And two is, if we don't find it interesting, we're not going to talk, talk about it. We're still going to pick what we're going to do. Exactly. We'll take your suggestion. Right. But there are definitely some movies. Like, I remember when we did Robocop just a few weeks ago, yeah. we talked about uh, that we had seen the Robocop, re the new one, right. together. Right. That that one, I have some stuff to say That's about. an interesting bad film to take a look at. And, and, uh, and, and just because we talk about it on the show... Uh, does not mean we won't actually do an Absolutely. episode on it either. Absolutely. I'm sure that's going to come up. In fact, one way to inspire us might be that we do a short and we go, wow, we really got to do this yeah. one soon. Yeah, if you want to pitch a film to us, absolutely. Yeah. So that's Cinephile Shorts on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And I think that is it for this week. We will be back next week with Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. <laughs>